Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Elite HRV Podcast. My name is Vivek Menon. I'm one of the core team at Elite HRV. So you might notice today is a slightly different episode of our podcast without Jason. But really, the main reason this episode is a little bit different is the public health crisis we are all in right now with coronavirus and COVID-19. This is a, a situation with personal risk for us here at Elite HRV, but probably also many of you. And that's why we're super pleased to have on the line with us, Dr. Patrick Hannaway. Dr. Hannaway is a board certified family physician with a degree from Washington University and residency at the University of New Mexico. He spent a decade as the chief medical officer at Genova Diagnostics, one of the largest lab companies around, followed by a tenure as the chief medical education officer for the Institute for Functional Medicine where he was also the founding medical director at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. Dr. Hannaway still serves as a research collaborator there, and he's also been the past president of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine. And right now, he's busy with his family-to-family uh, -family clinic with uh, his wife here in Asheville. Um, and very interestingly as well, Dr. Hannaway is an initiated shaman, by the Huichol people in the in in the Sierra Madres of Central Mexico, and even incorporates those healing practices into um, into his his way of doing things. Um, so, really, overall, Dr. Hannaway, I, I feel like you bring sanity back to healing, um, and you're transforming the conventional boundaries of medical practice with the education, research, and clinical care that you do. So, uh, thank you for joining us. I hope I didn't miss anything in that um, introduction. Um, just that I'm a dad, have, uh, have two sons. Uh, our whole family is, is here on our, uh, on our farm up in the, um, just north of Asheville and uh, spending as much time as we can out in nature as well. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so important. And I think we're going to get into some of those simple yet effective things we can all do in this current situation. You know, I did also want to point out that, uh, Dr. Hannaway, you are also uh, one of the leaders of the um, Institute for Functional Medicine's task force for uh, COVID-19. And, um, you know, as we were chatting before this discussion, uh, you'd mentioned that there's some really interesting things going on with, with that task force and some um, knowledge dissemination that's happening. So, um, yeah, I would love to kind of maybe kick off the, the, uh, the podcast with, with kind of what you're doing there, and, and then we can transition to some of these great questions. That'd be great, Vivek. Thank you so much. It's great to be on this. I'm a fan of Elite HRV and and in particular, but in all tools that look at heart rate variability. I've been working with this both personally and in my clinical practice now for about 18 years. Um, so it's not a not a Johnny come lately type of thing. It's really uh, deeply understanding how these tools can be useful uh, for ourselves and and for our patients. So um, 
in terms of of the Institute for Functional Medicine and, and what's going on there, you know, I would say that we were a, a little late to the party in in terms of recognizing that we needed to get out in front of this and what we're what we've been doing. Uh, over the past week, week and a half, is really gathering resources to be able to act as a clearinghouse. Uh, that's actually going to go live on on Monday. I'm not sure when this uh, podcast is is going to run, but uh, that would be on on Monday, April fourth, April sixth. Um, that uh, the uh, information is going out to our clinicians at this point in time. Uh, so that is to um, the educators as well as uh, all of the IFMCP certified practitioners around the country, about 1,500 of them. Uh, we're starting off with talking about virus-specific nutraceutical and botanical agents. Um, next week, our focus will be really on boosting the immunity and, and uh, promoting resilience. Uh, different components that will be done. We'll be talking more about uh, about uh, HRV and stress in that that time as well as about about nutrition. Uh, we're going to go into testing. We're going into you know deeper understandings of different kinds of, of herbs and uh, and supplements, both in prevention and treatment. We're going to be talking about medications, and there's going to be a weekly release of information as well as acting as a clearinghouse of of information that our our practitioners. Uh, over 1,500 of them have gathered and will be curated on our website and be available for uh, for anyone to be able to look at and read. So those those things will be coming out each Monday. You can go to the website at ifm.org and there'll be a, a COVID link uh, on the top of the webpage. That's great. We will definitely um, include that in in this and in as well as on our platform. So it that's um. Really looking forward to that. I think you know there's there's a lot of information that that kind of is is out there in in the media and other sources. There's you know we've we've re- we pulled our audience and we we received a ton of questions on the topic of you know what we should do and how we should approach this um, situation for ourselves and our loved ones. Um, you know what what we'll do is some of the questions the best answers still seem to be uh, at to the extent we know the answers, they seem to be seen and at the um, authorities like the WHO and the CDC and the European Center for Disease Control. So we'll definitely link to those um, as well as a task force group. But what you know we're interested in here is is kind of diving a little bit deeper into some of the uh, mechanisms behind the things we can do to either prevent or reduce the severity of the illness. And you've, you mentioned a couple of them, and maybe we could start with the nutraceuticals and herbs that you mentioned um, that uh, the group is looking at. And I know that's a broad topic, but, uh, you know, are there certain things we should be doing from a nutrition and supplementation standpoint, um, preventive-wise, or if we believe we have been exposed to it? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think I'll start off and, and focus more on food and nutrition first in terms of, of that looking at, you know, foods that are going to be high in polyphenols, high in flavonoids. Um, the, the vegetables, the fruits and vegetables that we're eating are particularly important um, at this point in time. We can talk a little bit later about the value of supporting the immune system of intermittent fasting and uh, even for some people, a ketogenic diet that are going to be really helpful agents um, to be able to 
really help support the immune system. Um, those are our key elements. So I always like to start with food first. They don't want to jump to, oh, the answers in the, the pill for an ill, but rather, um, you know, nutrition um, a, a whole whole food diet, you know, really focus on those sugar cravings and try to remove sugar in any kind of processed uh, processed foods, processed grains at this point in time, high glycemic index foods, those are going to be important. But when we when we start to look at at viral viral replication and what's going on with the SARS-CoV-2, and there's a lot of great resources out there for those who are interested in a deep dive on it. Uh, Dr. Uh, Roger Seaholt and, and medcrime.com have got now, I think, about 48 uh, episodes that, that go into really understanding the pathophysiology of the attachment of the virus and how it works. But a lot of what we've, what we've done, you know, a lot of what we know is is based upon our uh, analysis and, and papers that were on uh, SARS-CoV-1 um, and and on looking at the the mechanism of attack. And what we want to do is we want to work to help decrease the overall pro-inflammatory cytokines, the uncontrolled release of pro-inflammatory cytokines that can cause you know irreversible damage to the respiratory epithelium. It can also affect the uh, the mucosal uh, epithelium of the of the gastrointestinal tract in a in a subset of patients. Although that doesn't tend to uh, lead to the, the serious um, ARDS, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome kinds of things. Then um, the other things that we can do so we can decrease nuclear factor kappa B activation. We can decrease this uh, inflammasome that gets active. Uh, by the by the SARS-2 virus, and we can also decrease viral replication. Now, the the data that we have is not specific to for each of these kinds of agents is not specific to uh, SARS-CoV-2, but rather to other coronaviruses as well as other RNA-based viruses. You know, so for instance. Uh, um, one of one of my favorites, uh, quercetin. You know, you wouldn't think of that right away, but it's you know got a role as an antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory. It helps modulate the different pathways and helps to um, decrease uh, viral replication that's going on. And you know, so quercetin. Um, you know, usually dosing you know somewhere in the five hundred milligrams twice a day of the of the phytosome source of that, and really doesn't have a big risk profile associated with it. And then, Dr. Hanaway, when we talk about quercetin, is the mechanism via zinc and its impact on zinc? Uh, um, um, no, you know? no, it's not a zinc-specific mechanism. It, it actually helps to um, modulate the, uh, um, the, as I said, this thing called the NLRP3 inflammasome. It, it decreases activation and it helps to you know, modulate mast cells. It, it, it stabilizes mast cells and so is sort of antifibrotic in, in that way. Um, so it's got several different mechanisms and it also helps to inhibit viral re replication, which may be a zinc, um, not zinc dependent, but, but collaborative with zinc Along that, you've mentioned zinc. Zinc is a great tool. Uh, been demonstrated in many different studies. In fact, it's hard to get zinc in many resources at this point in time. Zinc gluconate is the one that's been studied the most uh, and is a, a great tool um, to have in your in your toolkit and to be used on the on the prevention side of things. Um, other other uh, you know, I've got a, a list of agents here. Um, you know that include uh, curcumin. Mm -hmm. um, 
elderberry. Elderberry is a little controversial. There have been some some questions about elderberry uh, that it may actually precipitate a, a thyroid storm or may be at risk in patients who have autoimmune disease. There's no data on patients with autoimmune disease of it being a risk. Certainly, we've used elderberry for a long period of time in helping to decrease influenza, um, another RNA-based virus. And so, uh, you know, taking 500 milligrams of that per day, although there has been some caution raised and the risk in elderberry may be a little higher once people become infected. So if you have a fever, um, you know, sort of the, the judicious thing is to say, eh, probably don't continue on it after that period of time. Um, and, uh, and, you know, but the evidence in terms of its benefit is really quite strong. Make sure if you're going to take a, uh, an elderberry that you've got, uh, something that's, that's standardized to the anthocyanocyanocytes. Um, so I, I say, you know, great for prevention. Uh, if people start having a fever, I'd stop that. Um, other things, uh, you know, glutathione, NAC, and acetylcysteine, uh, great, great as an agent to be able to help as an antioxidant. It's supporting glutathione uh, formation. It also acts uh, in a manner to be able to uh, thin out the, uh, the the mucus and uh, and has really been demonstrated to be protective in a, in a number of different studies. Uh, doses on that usually six hundred to nine hundred milligrams twice a day. Um, you know that's working primarily through the repletion of glutathione. Some people may also be taking uh, oral glutathione. Remember that it's the liposomal uh, glutathione that's going to be uh, more bioavailable than uh, than pills. Uh, per se. Um, other agents uh, that I like, um, green tea. I drink lots of green tea. Um, it's the, the beneficial um, uh, catechins that are, that are present in, in the green tea. And now some people will take uh, EGCG, epigallocatechin gallate, uh, at 225 milligrams per day. There is some uh, rare but significant hepatotoxicity that can happen at that dose of of EGCG. So I'm generally when I'm talking about that, I'm saying, gosh, it'd be so much better if you drank like you know two to four cups of matcha a day and use that to substitute for your coffee, and that's got all the benefits and it doesn't have the the risk profile, the harm profile that you get if you take the EGCG supplement. Yeah. Um, and it's it's tasty and it's a fun routine to make yourself a, a cup of matcha. So, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been really in the past, uh, interestingly, um, I used to be a big coffee drinker, you know, a coffee snob. Um, and about a year and a half ago, um, I, I switched and st I, I, after, uh, after some, some personal changes, uh, that I went through, I, uh, I found that, uh, I really like green tea. I didn't like it before that time, but, uh, and now I've become a, a fan of matcha. So I'm drinking, you know, generally like about four cups of matcha every day. And it's oh, wow. just a routine through the day, uh, something that's there. It's part of the support. So other kinds of things like vitamin D, um, vitamin D, there was one, 
um, paper that came out by an integrative medicine uh, group that raised questions about vitamin D, but actually the, the safety profile and risk of harm of vitamin D is tremendously good in terms of its mechanism of action. You know, it stimulates antimicrobial peptides and defensins. It helps modulate the, uh, the regulatory or the uh, TH17 cells. Uh, it decreases the expression of um, transforming growth factor beta. Uh, it decreases cytokine expression all these things, great mechanisms of action and really good outcomes data. Um, the one study that had had been indicated that it could potentially be a problem was in a mouse culture model in 2001. And the group followed up that study a year later and said, oh, no, um, that's not really a, a major effect. It was looking at one specific action of vitamin D in its uh, um, effect on the ACE2 receptor, which is where uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 binds in the lungs and on the respiratory epithelium is on that specific receptor. It also, to digress for a moment, it's also why there were some questions early on about, well, what about patients who have hypertension who are on um, medications like an angiotensin, an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker? And there was some, there have been some uh, evaluations epidemiologically looking at that saying, are people who have hypertension at, and on those drugs at a significantly increased risk? And the answer is no. So we do not recommend if people need to be on those kinds of medicines, there is no benefit to, to go off of those medicines at this point in time. That, that was a sort of a, a wondering early on because of the mechanism of attachment of the coronavirus onto the respiratory epithelium. Yeah. Um, yep. this, this is really interesting. And, and, um, but a couple couple thoughts spring to mind. One is um, you mentioned earlier on Dr. Seaholt and Medcram. Um, that's his lectures have become like a nightly uh, a nightly ritual, and uh, for me, um, and uh, he will link to this in the show notes. But he in particular had a really nice breakdown of the ACE two receptor and the role of um, the um, ARBs and ACE inhibitors, so these blood pressure medications and what they do. Two ACE two, and then also how the coronavirus fits in. So uh, yeah, I, I watched that one. I was somewhere in the uh, early 30s, I think, uh, there, of of that. Um, but I, I do know exactly the the episode yeah. that you're talking about. And you know, for me, it's very helpful. I don't remember that stuff. Medical school was. Uh, a long, long time ago, more than right. 30, 35 <laughs> years ago. And right. we, didn't, we didn't know this stuff at that time. So it's great. He does a really good job with his graphics and with simplifying, um, but not dumbing down the information. Right, right. So um, the other thing I wanted to ask about or, or mention, because you did mention vitamin D, and then that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a great one because for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, personally, I've had great uh, a great experience supplementing with vitamin D, you know, based on my skin color and where I live in the Northern latitudes, it's, it's pretty much guaranteed that, um, I'm quite deficient in vitamin D and, uh, more anecdotal than anything else, but since, you know, appropriately supplementing vitamin D, so not going too hard on it, but, uh, since doing that, you know, it's felt like my immunity has transformed quite a bit, particularly if I'm under stress from other sources, you know, mental or kids keeping me up and sleeping. And so, um, vitamin D seems like a good thing to explore considering that most of the world's population is coming out of a winter with less sunlight and are now essentially at home, um, for large periods of time, 
um, you know, indoors largely as well on top of that. And so there's probably some deficiencies to consider when it comes to, to what vitamin D does. Absolutely. And, you know, to remember, you know, it's the, it's the sunlight vitamin. So if you can get outside and you can get sunlight, you'll make it yourself. And that's, that's even better. The data appears that that's even better than taking it as a supplement. Um, but, you know, for those who are in uh, larger urban environments and don't have the capacity to be outside in nature or out in the sunlight to the same degree, um, certainly vitamin D, usually I'm recommending for patients at 5,000 I use a day um, in the northern latitudes, um, southern latitudes, sort of below Atlanta. Um, usually, two thousand I use a day is is sufficient. But um, you know that that's where I go. The other couple things I wanted to just touch base on were uh, vitamin A, which has been known to be very good for um, for the for the mucosa, um, and using doses that are going to that's going to be helping to modulate the T helper cells and and the uh, secretory IgA and helps modulate uh, cytokines. Those things, uh, vitamin D A, um, ten thousand to twenty five thousand units a day. Um, you know, people when they're treating with vitamin A will will use higher doses um, for a short period of time, bursts of three to five days. You don't want to be on doses higher than twenty five thousand for more than five days. Um, you know that can be used as at the early signs of of fever. Uh, and doing that vitamin C also um, very helpful. And there's a new agent that uh, I don't have a lot of clinical experience with, but where some there's some interesting data on right now, and that is a uh, an anti-inflammatory uh, called uh, uh, palmitoyl ethanolamide (PEA), and you know, PEA has some interesting mechanisms of action where it, it helps with uh, with modulating viral production. You know, decreases the viral um, cellular processes that are going on, and it helps the um, the cellular defense mechanism. We don't have great. Uh, um, great data on its harm. It hasn't been used a lot, but, um, you know, it does inhibit the sort of, um, primary things of, of TNF alpha and nuclear factor kappa B, um, and helping with mast cell stabilization and doses on that for prevention are in the 300, um, twice a day range of, of PEA. Um, there are some that are available also with luteolin, which has also been shown to be effective. So that's kind of the, the broad list of, of options that are, that are available. Um, you know, there's some others that were, were, investigating more deeply, um, that is, uh, astragalus, mm-hmm. um, uh, andrographis, Chinese skullcap, looking at some of the traditional Chinese medicines, things that have been used in, in Wuhan and, uh, and ways of being able to approach that. Um, but we're, we're just getting into a deep dive on those, uh, through the Institute for Functional Medicine right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very interesting. And, and, and just a quick question on vitamin A. Do you, um, do you recommend any kind of whole food sources to obtain that from, um, in addition to supplementing if necessary? Um, you know, every one of these things are going to be better in a whole food source, every single one of them. So by both getting carotenoids as well as getting vitamin A, vitamin D, um, you know, through various kinds of, uh, of, of oily fishes and sardines and, and things of that nature, uh, cod liver oil, um, all of those things are great, are, are better sources. If you can get it from food, it's better than getting it from a pill every time. Mm-hmm. Yep. That makes sense. You know, we have, um, 
I have a, a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and we 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 were um, surprised by this, but they actually like the taste of cod liver oil. And so <laughs> part of me wonders, oh, maybe we're just conditioned to think it tastes poorly um, or has a funny taste. But uh, just as a funny anecdote, the, the kids love their their dose of cod liver oil. <laughs> well, I think it's an important thing that you're saying and that introducing our children to whole foods and a, and a well-rounded palate and not overdoing sugar or really avoiding sugar um, early on helps them to have a much broader uh, range of tastes than they than are the kids who are eating you know Captain Crunch and and you know all the sugary cereals and you know unfortunately even a lot of things that we get in our um, in our organic markets you know when we're going down that aisle of, of cereals and they may look all great and organic but they still have a lot of sugar in them so mm-hmm. we need to be particularly careful and with our kids about that because we sort of raise them. Uh, with right. a sweet tooth, as unfortunately many of us were raised uh, with that, that promotion of the sweet tooth. Right. Um, right. That's a great point. Yeah. It's something that we don't really think about as as being so um, pervasive, but you're right, especially as, as a child. Um, on, and on that note, actually, one of the things you'd mentioned, Dr. Hanaway, was um, kind of a, a ketogenic or low-carb diet and its impact on e- either inflammation or immunity. And is there, you know, obviously one of the benefits of that kind of nutrition protocol is hopefully a uh, reduction in these processed, um, high glycemic, um, sugary ingredients. Is there anything else to the that nutrition protocol that might be helpful um, in this situation, you know, besides obviously the reduced intake of sugars? Well, I'm... Uh... I'm a big fan of the of the ketogenic diet, you know, across various kinds of applications. And so seeing that in people with um, diabetes, prediabetes, it, it does appear uh, from the epidemiologic data that when we look at, well, why are younger um, people getting sick in the United States? And, you know, so we see that 40% of the, of the cases are happening uh, or th- I'm sorry, 30% of the cases are happening in, in people who are from 20 to 44 years old, 20% of the hospitalizations. This wasn't seen in China at all. And one of the main factors appears to be obesity, that there's a threefold increased uh, risk of developing um, serious infection and hospitalization if you are obese. Now, you know, when we, when we look at the data on this, uh, sadly enough, what we see is that you know, 72% of the American population is overweight and 40% of it, uh, 42% of it is obese, you know, and that's, that's increasing the risk. And so looking at using the, the ketogenic diet to decrease the sugar, the sugar is feeding the viruses, you know, so that's a key factor in what's going on. So looking at the, uh, the low glycemic index approach, one that is a low carb, you know, I like to think about a, uh, a Mediterranean low carb diet, uh, uh, which sounds uh, counterintuitive, but you know, really, if we if we pull out the pastas and the breads from that, and you know, even 
um, we, we pull out those things, we can really do uh, a lower carb diet, something that's more in the 20% range, or, you know, we can take it all in, in those cases of, of patients who are willing and ready to be able to do it, a ketogenic diet. Now, one of the things I want to highlight about the ketogenic diet from my own um, research and investigation on this, and one of the things that I spend a lot of time on, you know, both uh, before and through my work with Genova Diagnostics. And so I teach about um, the gut microbiome. I've been teaching about that since 1991. Um, we didn't call it that back at that point in time. But the role of dysbiosis and imbalances in the, in the gut microbiome so-called dysbiosis leads to an alteration of the T regulatory pathways. And so we see that the um, danger associated molecular patterns and the, and the pathogen associated molecular patterns, DAMPs and PAMPs that are upregulating the inflammatory pathways is that when we have dysbiosis and when we have obesity, these people are are driving the inflammation, the, the, the inflammasome. They, they, they have inflammation that's sort of inherently there and it's driving the process. And so we can see it's sort of like adding fuel to the fire that's going on. And so the dietary approaches of a low carb diet, of a low glycemic index diet, of a ketogenic diet are all going to be helpful. But the caveat I want to add here, and, and this is emerging. So, um, I'm looking at, uh, at, at trying to understand uh, some data that I'm seeing uh, put forth. I haven't been able to evaluate the, um, the validity of it yet. Um, I'm, I'm going to go two ways here. So first I'm going to say the carnivore diet is said that your microbiome is great on a carnivore diet. I'm not convinced of that. Um, I want to see the data on that. But what we have seen with people who are on a ketogenic diet is that it does tend to decrease the diversity of the gut microbiome. And we know that that's a critically important factor in talking about uh, the health of, of the gut, the health of the microbiome, and the health of the body as a whole, and is an, is an indicator, a pointer to what your overall nutritional status is. So the key thing is actually ensuring it's not just about getting getting, you know, 70, 80, 75, 80% fat in the diet, but it's necessary to be able to ensure that you're getting adequate uh, variety of, of phytonutrients and flavonoids um, through the vegetables that you're eating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so like almost a ketotarian kind of approach and you don't have, you can eat like from my, my perspective, you know, eating as an omnivore is, is great and being ketogenic eating as an omnivore. But I see a number of people who go ketogenic and are really limiting the food choices that they have. And you need to have an expanded uh, opportunity of, you know, nine different kinds of, uh, of vegetables every day and looking down and seeing the phytonutrient spectrum of a rainbow color of whole foods on your plate, you know, at least one meal every day you should look down and see five different colors on that plate. That's really where the benefit is. And so as a ketogenic diet, when I'm talking with patients, that's what I'm emphasizing, you know, and, and also then if you're really going to go ketogenic, um, I feel like you need to understand to be measuring your beta hydroxybutyrates. Um, you know, there's some good tools out there available. Uh, I'm much more of a fan just to dive into that for a moment, um, you know, while you can use a, uh, a urine test over the first couple weeks to see, am I starting to get into ketosis? Uh, once 
once your body gets acclimated to it and you've dealt with the insulin resistance that's that's going on, your body will start holding on to those ketones. And so you really have to measure it through. I, I feel like the best tool is a uh, is a blood stick. And the couple that I've seen and use are the Precision Analytics and the Keto Mojo. Um, they're, they're great tools. And measuring that and looking at, am I in nutritional ketosis somewhere between 0.7 and 1.5? You can go up to 2.0, but if you're in the 0 0.7 to 1.5 range, you're doing well on a nutritional ketosis, which is different than therapeutic ketosis, but nutritional ketosis will take you where you want and need to go. Mm -hmm. um, so Rob, yeah, yeah, that's, this makes, uh, this makes total sense. And that's, there's actually a lot to, to unpack there. And if, if I could try to summarize some of the things that you mentioned, so, um, would specific to the ketogenic diet and, and kind of going lower carb to it, it, makes sense to me that if you're transitioning to that from a diet that's been rich in high glycemic sugary calories, that there's probably some beneficial impact to the gut from just cutting those out. But over time, you know, not having all those phytonutrients and the variety of fibers and vegetables, it, it also makes sense that gut diversity can be impacted. And um, that's important because it, it really does feel like, you know, our gut microbiome is this gigantic pharmaceutical factory that we harbor, and it's manufacturing all these drugs that are impacting pretty much every organ system in our body, including our immune system and the adaptive immune system. Um, uh, and so making sure that that pharmaceutical factory is appropriately tended for probably means um, that... Uh, you're going to have a better inflammatory status. And so you're probably not going to present some of these other diseases of inflammation, including, you know, obesity and hypertension and cardiovascular issues and diabetes and all this other stuff. So to me, it does make sense how the right um, structure of a ketogenic diet can really help not only reduce inflammation, but potentially then maybe get you a little bit less at risk for developing more serious issues with uh, SARS-CoV-2? Is that is that a fair statement? I know we probably don't know that, but... Well, it um, is a fair statement because we do see what the what the role of of the uh, of the gut microbiome is in activating the um, NF kappa B, um, you know, through what are called toll-like receptors. Now, one thing I want to highlight around this is that, you know, what I see in a number of different uh, recommendations is, is 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 then it'll say, oh yeah, and take a probiotic. And I I'm particularly um, resistant to that. I would say that in my career, you know, 20 years ago um, and more. 30 years ago, I was saying, you know, take big doses of probiotics of lots of different strains. What we now um, have a better understanding of is that probiotics act in very specific, specific probiotics act in specific ways. And we don't know which probiotics are acting in specific ways in relationship to uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID infection. You know, so non-specifically telling people to take probiotics to me is... It, is not a rational thing. Taking foods that have, that are cultured foods that have been used in, in different um, um, cultures over time is a great thing to do, whether it's, you know, kimchi or sauerkraut or uh, kefirs and things of that nature, yogurts. Um, but 
where I'm focusing more now is, well, let's focus on prebiotics. Let's focus on the uh, absorbable uh, fibers, uh, such as acacia root, uh, larch, um, mm. Mm-hmm. And and being able to use inulin using those kinds of things, and I also particularly favor um, the agents like um, blueberry extract, cranberry extract, um, grape extract, and um, what's the other one I'm looking for? Cranberry extract. All of which the flavonoids that are present there have been helped have been shown to help the anti-inflammatory bacteria to be able to grow. So using prebiotics and using those kinds of agents to be able to help the beneficial bacteria within you to grow because we don't know which probiotics are going to have the antiviral effect that is being desired. And non-specifically taking probiotics isn't necessarily going to help your gut microbiome to move into a more balanced state. I like to talk about probiotics as tourists. They, they're transient. They move through. They don't stick around. The data is there. It's pretty clear. Now we're learning there may be a small percentage of them that stick around. But, you know, I can say that over the past 25 years of living in Asheville, I see a lot more tourists. I'm not convinced it helps the economy of this. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it helps in the short term. It changes things. It definitely changes things, but it doesn't actually lead towards long-term sustainability. And so we don't want to create a dependence on that. We want to use food as the food to feed our, our own gut microbiome, get it in balance and feed that properly. And so my focus is more on prebiotics and using those things, um, such as the, the agents that I've just mentioned to be able to help the beneficial bacteria within your own gut to be able to grow. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense, and you, and so you're you're kind of you're you're teaching teaching yourself to fish rather than trying to just get <laughs> get free fish um, Meta- metaphorically. Yes, yeah, indeed. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So so and, on that, and to just to, to say, and there are situations where people need fish. You know, where you need to use a probiotic for a specific kinds of thing. I'm not anti probiotics mm-hmm. i'm just saying that they're specific and targeted and we don't know what those specific and targeted probiotics are to be able to support our immune system to decrease viral replication at this point in time right that makes sense and and so you know on the uh, while we're on the topic of nourishing and supporting the gut microbiome and we've talked a lot about the prebiotic fibers the 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 nutrition from foods and um from a lifestyle standpoint is, what role does exercise play? And, you know, can we use exercise today, you know, as a way to not only nourish the gut microbiome, but but by doing that and perhaps other things that exercise does help boost our immune systems and, and you know, put ourselves in a better position um, here? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question that, you know, moderate regular exercise helps to boost our immune system. You know, it it raises uh, antibodies, it helps to promote circulation, it decreases our stress hormones. All of those aspects are are very important. And so we see exercise as having, you know, a a great and wonderful role in the process of how to be able to um, support our immune system overall. We don't want to miss that. What we want to be careful about is that now would not be a time, you know, for someone who is not, uh, who has not been exercising regularly to jump in and do an aggressive, you know, three, four times a week hit routine to try to uh, jump in. That's going to create uh, a stress to the body. We know that, uh, that things like, um, 
ultra endurance and running marathons, you know, can have an effect, a negative effect on the permeability within the gut and with it and with the immune system itself also. Um, so, I mean, if you're already out there and you're doing training in that way, that's fine and good. Continue on with that. But now is not the time to really um, super amp up your exercise routine and overly stress the body. So having, that's why we talk about a, a moderate exercise routine. So, you know, um, from my perspective and, and others will vary on this and I'm sure we'll get some comments, you know, but looking at, at hit routines a couple times a week um, to be able to help with your overall exercise endurance and capacity, you know, helping, you know, the, the concept of hormesis, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, you want to be able to push the system to help it to be able to grow, but you don't want to over push it. And so finding out where that zone is, you know, that's one of the things where, you know, a tool like Elite HRV or some kind of evaluation of the heart rate variability is giving you a perfect biofeedback tool to say, hey, when am I overdoing it? When do I need to cut back? And so I'm, I'm a particular fan uh, of, of it as a tool to be able to evaluate, you know, where is my resilience? Where wh am I overtraining at this point in time? And so it's the beauty of it as a tool because you get you know, biofeedback. It's not like, oh, this doctor told me or this trainer told me, or, you know, I watched this on a YouTube video and I'm going to do this. You know, you know, something like a, a 90 PX can be a great tool for helping to get someone in shape, but it can also tip you over and make you more susceptible if you're overdoing it. So use that, use that uh, HRV tool to give you feedback on where am I at with my training and where am I at with, uh, with my resilience at this point in time. And obviously that's going to be taking into account those other important lifestyle factors. You know, we can't underestimate the importance of sleep and deep sleep to be able to, you know, help in the re in the recovery process, you know, for individuals, you know, now is not the time to, you know, binge watch Ozarks or, you know, some <laughs> other, other kind of thing um, and stay up late and not take care of yourself. I was talking to a patient uh, this morning, you know, and it's like, the importance of having some some routines in our lives. When we look at other cultures, they have daily routines that go on. In our culture, our daily routine often tends to revolve around our work. So as our work structure is changing, you know, how do we develop routines to be able to do that? You know, get up, take a shower, you know, um, get dressed, look nice, don't stay in your pajamas, you know, go outside, do your exercise, do your morning, um, whether it's meditation or prayer or yoga or tai chi it's like it doesn't matter to me what that mechanism of helping to move into you know some grounded place of of gratitude and connection at the beginning of the day um those are very important and, and you know the studies have demonstrated that over and over again of the effect of those things on the immune system and and find ways to take care of yourself. And then how do you deal with the stressors that come in? You know, we have new kinds of stressors where if I'm out running and it's like someone's running at me and it's like, do I need to, do I need to create six feet of distance, you know, uh, in a, on a path that I'm running on? I can't do that. Do I need to jump off to let them run by? No, 
you know, the, the, the transmission, you know, it does not appear to be aerosolized and it appears to be when we have hand contact um, or, or we're in the same space with someone who has it, you know, in less than six foot radius, you know, for a 10, 10 minute or longer period of time. You know, so, you know, we're not going to get it just like randomly passing people. It's going to happen from the mailbox that we're touching, from the doorknob that we're touching. You know, so when you're touching different things, I'm sort of jumping off into, I did want to spend just a moment just talking about, you know, what we need to do to decrease contagion. You know, the... um there's a great Vimeo from uh, Dr. Price, a pulmonologist in New York, um, you, you, where he talks about this. He, he perseverates on a little bit. You know, it's about 45 minutes long, but it's actually really good. You know, he's just talking about, like, use soap and water. Wash your hands. You touch something use or use Purell, use something, you know, but clean your hands after you touch something. If you, you know, you're going out and you're, you've got to go or someone's got to go to the supermarket, the grocery store at some point in time. Okay. So, you know, wash your hands before you touch the cart, clean the cart, use the cart. You know, when, when you're, you know, when you're done, wash your hands again, you go and get in the cart, wash your hands, you get home, wash your hands you know, then that's going to be the most helpful way to be able to do that. And there's some controversy now just talking about spread of contagion, about masks. Should we use masks? We were told don't use masks, you know, save them for the healthcare workers. Yes, the healthcare workers need the masks. They're the highest risk population right now, you know, but now there's some data that's emerging that's saying, well, maybe we should really all be wearing masks to decrease our, our exposure so that if we're out in a in an arena where there are other people, when you got to go to the post office or you got to go to um, the uh, the grocery store or the drug store, um, it does appear that wearing a mask is a good thing, is, is wow. a thing that, that will be helpful. And that's sort of some changes uh, in, our, in what we've been saying uh, over the past 24 hours. So we're continuing to learn um, from this process, but develop routines. My point in coming into this is like develop routines around what you're going to do. Because if you're relating to every single thing, if you're relating to the UPS driver dropping off your Amazon package as a threat, you know, it's like you just have them leave it on the, you know, have them leave the box, you know, outside your door. You don't have to engage him, you know, put a note on your door that has a signature on it says I signed for everything and he'll leave it outside your door and then, you know, go. And when you get it, you know, use some gloves, get it, open the box, get the stuff out. Um, you know, if you want to be really specific about it, you can wipe that down. Um, I think that there's a, an overdoing of that, but you know, the key thing is washing your hands so right. that your hands are clean when you go and you touch your face, you know, right. cause we say don't touch the face, but ultimately we're going to do that. If your hands are clean, you're fine. So keep taking care of it in that way. That's the key piece around helping to decrease contagion. Mm-hmm. And is there, is there, uh, do we know at this point how long on different surfaces the virus sticks around? You know what I mean? If, if you needed to just leave it, leave it outside, do you, do you recommend any Four, amount of 40, time? Well, 48 to 72 hours on hard surfaces, on stainless steel and glass. Um, we don't know the answer on cardboard. Um, you know, I've heard, I've seen it written that it's, you know, six hours should be fine, but we just don't know. I mean, that's all, it's all conjecture at this point in time. 
Yeah. So better better to wash your hands after you handle it. it makes exactly. Sense. Exactly. Yeah. Then then you've got that taken care of. Yeah. So one um one thing you did mention, Doctor Hanaway, is you know we we were talking about exercise and the role of HRV as a as a way to kind of personalize the exercise dose so that it is moderate and not you know overly um, stressful um, for your particular physiology and what else is going on in your life. Um, we also talked about kind of anxiety and mental stress and how that, that can also, um, weigh on you and, and literally the immune system. Um, with HRV, you know, it, it seems pretty sensitive to the impact of stress from these sources. Um, is, is, do you recommend anything that, um, we should be doing when looking at something like HRV or other biomarkers about our immune status or, or, you know, risk of illness? Is, is there anything there we should be looking at? Yeah. The, the, um, the inflammatory markers are kind of, um, notoriously insensitive. So even something like highly sensitive CRP, which is probably the best uh, blood-based biomarker that we have to be able to look at, at inflammation. You know, I see many patients with autoimmune diseases whose HSCRP is completely normal. So there's other inflammatory processes that are going on for those people who have autoimmune disease. Um, I've had multiple conversations about this, um, you know, in theory, people with an autoimmune disease have an increased risk. Um, in particular, it's those patients who are on medications that are immunomodulators, um, and as well as there's a question about the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, ibuprofen in particular has been highlighted, although um, meloxicam and naproxen and other kinds of things, there's question marks about that. Um, we know those drugs will have effects on increasing intestinal permeability. So I tend to work to stay away from those kinds of, of medications. Um, but in, t- in talking about risk factors, I'm thinking more about what, what medications people are on and having multiple uh, chronic diseases, uh, those people are going to be at greater risk. So those who have an autoimmune disease probably do have some increased risk profile. We don't have clear data on that at this point in time. Those with an autoimmune disease who are taking some kind of immunomodulatory or immunosuppressive drug, um, methotrexate, imuran, uh, a biologic, uh, anything that ends in MAB, infliximab, Uh, is an example of that. You know, those are people who are at increased risk of of having because they they are actively suppressing their immune system. So those people need to be particularly careful. Are there other biomarkers that we have? You know, looking at uh, dysbiosis in the gut is helpful to look at that. Looking at secretory IgA in the gut are helpful indicators or pointers to where there's an imbalanced immune system that's going on, but we don't have great blood-based biomarkers, which is why I particularly like the HRV tool because it's going to give me real-time information about what's going on. It's going to tell me about where things are at in that, in that parasympathetic, sympathetic tone. You know, am I, am I reaching a place of, of coherence uh, within that? And that, that to me is really the key thing. And, and what can I do to be able to change my routine and be able to get the feedback that shares and shows information to me. And I want to just tell a personal story about this if, if I can. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, so I've um, been monitoring my, my heart rate variability every day now for 
about a year and a half, year and eight months. And, um, you know, I went through and I said, well, gosh, I'm, I'm, my HRV is much lower than I thought it would be. Um, you know, and I would have ups and downs, but, you know, so I said, okay, well, I need to really, at that point in time, I was eating keto and doing that. And it's like, oh, well, that doesn't seem to be enough. And so I doubled down on my, my own prayer and meditation practice, you know, in terms of, of kind of going from, you know, once a day to twice a day for 20 minutes. And, and that didn't really make a difference for me. It helped me feel better, but it didn't make a big difference for me. Began to focus more on my sleep and ensure that I got at least seven and a half hours of sleep a night. I notoriously would not get enough sleep. That made a little bit of a difference, but not a big difference. Then I started spending time in nature on the the land that I live on. We have some trails and, you know, very fortunate in that way, Um, but not to get exercise. You know, and I was doing an exercise routine during that, you know, hit two to three times a week. So sort of doing all the right elements and the HRV was stable and, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't high. It wasn't, you know, the, the overall uh, uh, amount of, of looking at where things were at was, you know, sort of consistent with a, a 40 to 50 year old man. I'm 60, but I'm like, how do I get it down to, you know, being in the state of a, of a 20 to 30 year old man? And uh, mm-hmm. I started spending time in nature um, just to wander and spend time in nature. It was more creative time. It was more reflective time. And my HRV went up incredibly it almost doubled wow um, now that tool is not the elite hrv tool that's the aura tool so you know a little different measurements but you know looking at the same kinds of things i use both i use the elite hrv in the morning and i have the aura um, maybe that's belt and suspenders but i like i get different information from both of them and i find them to both be helpful mm-hmm. so so that's it's going to be different. My point is it's going to be different for each of us. Use yourself as the experimental tool to find out what are the things that make a difference in, in my HRV and, and begin to incorporate those into your daily practice. That's, that's the key thing. Uh, so, and, and that's, what's going to the data on, on HRV and sympathetic parasympathetic tone and the immune system are very, very good. And so optimizing that is optimizing your chance to decrease the infectivity of what's going on. So we hear about this. We hear, you know, that about 20% of the people who get infected, right, first do the things to decrease contagion, as I talked about earlier, to decrease transmission. But if you you get it, 20% of the people really aren't having symptoms at all. 40% 40% of the people are having mild symptoms, 20% of the of them are having severe symptoms and another 20 another 20% are needing to be hospitalized. They're so bad. Mm-hmm. And of those, 10% are are going to end up being or, or 5% are going to end up being in the ICU and right now it looks like maybe 1% of people are dying. And they tend to be people who's who again, multiple complex uh chronic disease, um, multiple comorbidities, obese, older, all the kinds of things that we would expect. But what can, what can we do 
to be able to minimize the impact on our body. And what we're talking about here in terms of, of food, lifestyle, um, stress reduction, HRV, connection and relationships, connection to the natural world, all of those things. And then using some, if you like, some kinds of nutraceuticals or botanicals that we talked about earlier, all of these are improving your opportunity to be able to optimize your health and well-being and to boost your immune system so that if and what it seems like when um, the majority of us are going to get this. Right. Do we do we sit in that bucket of asymptomatic or mild? That's right. what we want. And right. you know, when we get it, you know, to be able to 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 quarantine ourselves, don't put those, um, you know, our our parents who may not have the same kind of lifestyle that we do. Don't put those people at risk, if at all possible. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And it, it's funny how this is an unprecedented situation, yet. When it comes down to what is the one thing to do lifestyle-wise to help the situation, it still comes back to what you said, which is strive to be um, the best owner of your own health and wellness that you can by tackling basic things like your sleep, your nutrition, your movement and exercise, and your, your, your mental stress and connection to nature and society. And just by doing that using, you know, simple tools like HRV tracking and, and other, other things, that's probably going to make the biggest difference for yourself and your loved ones over time. Um, Cause like you said, it, it will, if you do it over time and it's not a magic pill, but if you, if you, you know, make it a part of your habits and your behavioral processes, it over time is, probably the single best thing that can take you from being in that, you know, higher risk case to a lower risk case. And, and, you know, if you're using tools like HRV, you might even be able to tell when you're about to enter into a situation where you might be contagious. And so you'll be better equipped to stay away <laughs> at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Um, there was a question that you had uh, posed um, earlier you know, that's, and what's the single best lifestyle action you can take to boost your immune system. And, you know, I'm going to say, I feel it's about having good relationships, ha having clarity in your connection with other people. This is a stressful time. We're all going through, you know, things it, it, it's quote, I've heard many times the new normal. We have no idea what the new normal is going to be, but we know that, that right now things are different and change is stressful for all of us. So how we work in, in cultivating or deepening our relationships so that they aren't a source of stress for us. You know, the, um, my friend, Dr. Mark Hyman talks about vitamin L, you know, the love vitamin, you know, love is medicine and really it's not to make light of anything, but rather it is to indicate that, you know, the importance of this cannot be underestimated. And so particularly at these times of, of, I don't like the term social isolation because I don't feel like I'm socially isolated. I'm talking to people 
all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm screen sharing. I'm doing zoom, you know, Monday night dinner with extended family of 18 people across five States, you know, and, and we're connecting in ways that we haven't connected in a long time. I'm connecting to, to friends who I haven't spent FaceTime with, or, or whenever I see them, we're busy at meetings and we don't just sit and chat and I'm able to do that now. And so the importance of those relationships and connection is is particularly highlighted during this mm-hmm. point in time. So, so take the time to do that and take the time to be uh, with your, with your family and those who you love, who are around you and develop new routines to help you through the process. Mm-hmm. That's such a great perspective and such a great reminder. You know, the, the same, amazing technological progress that we've made that has turned a a local infection so quickly into a worldwide public health crisis also gives us the ability to stay so closely in touch with our loved ones all around the world. So if we're suffering from one side of the equation of that progress, we (laughs) we should take advantage of the tools we have to offer on the other side by staying in touch and and being grateful for those connections and being able to, you know, at at the click of a button, chat face-to-face with uh, somebody thousands of miles away. So Exactly, exactly. I have a bumper sticker on my old, my my 30-year-old pickup truck. It says, for fast-acting relief, try slowing (laughs) down. (laughs) Amen. Stop and smell the roses. Well, I know that... um, um, Speaking of relationships and and depth of relationships, we're we're really grateful to you, um, Dr. Hanway, for taking the time in such a busy, busy and intense period to um to to talk through some of your wisdom with us. Um, I, I know we want to be mindful of your time, and I think we're kind of coming up against your your other commitments. Is there is there anything else we should um you, you'd want to? chat about or mention regarding the current situation for our audience that we maybe haven't hit on um, at the end? Well, we've, we have touched on it, but it's more of uh, putting a point on it. And that is that we're at a time where we now begin to see that the, the, the busyness and the frenetic nature of our lives is one that that has tended to put us at risk and that by connecting to ourselves and what's going on, you know, using tools like what we've talked about. And, you know, I am a big fan of the, of the HRV tool as giving sort of immediate feedback on, on how am I doing? Uh, So it doesn't become a a mental justification, but rather there's some objective data that says, wow, um, I'm actually more, more stressed than I thought I was giving the feedback, connecting to ourselves, connecting to each other. We talked about relationships and connecting to the natural world. While, while things in our mind are frenetic, when we walk out in the natural world, it's spring. Things are coming forth. You know, take time to do that. Connect to self, each other, and the natural world. Um, you know that 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 to me is the is the most important message of of what we can do. Uh, be kind to yourself. Be kind to each other, um, and use the kinds of tools that we've talked about here to be able to help and support you on that journey. Wonderful. I, I couldn't 
couldn't have put it better myself. And um, if if we if we take anything away from this discussion, I think that's a great place to start with. Um, so thank you, Dr. Hannaway, for for uh, enlightening us. Um, we will definitely link to the um, information the task force group puts out. And it sounds like there's going to be all kinds of really interesting things coming out each week. Um, and certainly there'll be, there'll be lots of questions and lots of learning uh, along the way. But um, I'm optimistic that you know, we'll, we'll come through this and we'll all be stronger for it afterwards. But in the meantime, thanks again for the time. And um, uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. Well, thank you, Vivek, and to Jason and the whole Elite HRV team and the work that y'all are doing in the world, helping to have a tool that gives people um, the opportunity to really improve their own health and well-being uh, is a great service and a, an important thing at this point in time. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, we'll, uh, we will chat soon, I think. Take care. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy.